Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers The Power of Nightmares, the Adam Curtis documentary from the early 2000s. And uh, if you have any thoughts on this, please send feedback. I will share it in upcoming episodes. Same with any older episode. Uh, I actually recorded this last year for patrons, and I had planned to put it out around this time anyways, but it also occurred to me recently, because a lot of podcasts I listen to have been covering this, that it's the 20th anniversary of the Iraq invasion a couple weeks ago. And this is a film that deals mostly with the broader war on terror in Afghanistan, but obviously it pertains to that in the Bush administration, the neoconservative movement. And uh, so the timing is is kind of uh, fitting in, the, in that sense as well. Now, before we get on to the episode proper, I just want to update you on my recent work that I've been up to elsewhere on lostinthemovies.com. I've been continuing my Twin Peaks character series that runs every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Since the last update on this podcast, I've put up a bunch of episodes, a bunch of, sorry, uh, entries. These are written uh, character studies, not podcasts. And those characters were at number 67, ranked by Screen Time, Sam Colby and Tracy Barbarato, number 66, Deputy Chad Broxford, number 65, Ernie Niles, number 64, uh, notes on an old entry, Jacques Renault, which didn't need to be updated because he wasn't in season three, Freddie Sykes, number 63, The Singer, number 62, notes on another old entry, Renette Pulaski at number 61, number 60 is Charlie, number 59, Sonny Jim Jones. Some notes on some other old entries, Jean Renault, Mayor Dwayne Milford, and Lana Budding Milford at number 58 through 56, Carrie Page at number 55, number 54 is Candy as well as Sandy and Mandy, number 53 notes on another old entry, Philip Gerard, number 52, Eileen Hayward, and just today, number 51, Bill Hastings, bringing us up to the top 50 characters. So stay tuned to that series as it goes along. On my other podcast feeds, uh, Twin Peaks Cinema put out an episode on Blue Velvet, my longest episode ever of that series, part of a season that I've been doing January to March called The Lynchverse, where I look at different David Lynch films and how they relate to his own work on Twin Peaks. And then for Twin Peaks Conversations, I released episode number 20, audio only on YouTube, an interview with 25 years later publisher Andrew Grievous. And on Patreon for $5 a month patrons, I put out the exclusive part two of that conversation, a whole nother hour where we talk about his ideas about the passage of time and Twin Peaks. So lots of interesting stuff there. He also had a really fascinating uh, route to Twin Peaks, which I've never heard before, uh, at least in terms of, you know, where he was at when he watched the original series. And uh, you can hear that in the public part of that conversation. For the dollar a month patrons, I had two uh, exclusive advance roundups where I showed patrons upcoming entries from the Twin Peaks character series, numbers 45 through 43, and numbers 41 through 39. 42 and 38 were uh, already published characters who you know, didn't need to be updated for the season three stuff since I did this uh, series originally back in 2017 and have just been updating it this year. So you can check out you know six more character entries there as a patron, and you'll be getting them now every week on the dollar a month tier for the public, uh, on Patreon. So on, on patreon.com slash lost in the movies, but open to everybody. If they want to go listen to it is my episode 100 bonus. I haven't put out the episode 100 proper yet where I'm going to review a bunch of different films, but this was the final archive where I read some previous work on films from the forties, thirties and silent era. 
And then also on my side, I have cross posts for the Andrew Grievous conversation, the conversation with Twin Peaks Grammar, and uh, everything for the February Patreon update. So you can check all those out. Uh, and now for the power of nightmares. They say that they will rescue us from dreadful dangers that we cannot see and do not understand. And the greatest danger of all is international terrorism, a powerful and sinister network with sleeper cells in countries across the world. A threat that needs to be fought by a war on terror. But much of this threat is a fantasy, which has been exaggerated and distorted by politicians. It's a dark illusion that has spread unquestioned through governments around the world, the security services and the international media. This is a series of films about how and why that fantasy was created and who it benefits. Many of the films that I watch and discuss as film capsules or films in focus on this podcast are kind of stumbled on accidentally. Some of the films I review on my site as well, uh, often they're because I have a DVD Netflix queue that's, you know, has been around now for, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so, actually longer, I think almost 17 years. And uh, some titles get added years ago, maybe even decades ago at this point. And they just sort of sit there and other things bump them back. And, you know, I don't use the DVD Netflix account all the time, but um, every few months or so I have something I need to watch or want to watch. And so I watch it and then whatever is behind it kind of bumps forward. And so that's how I've seen a lot of these films that are sort of random picks often from years ago and things like that. In this case, Power Nightmares ended up near the top of my queue because last year I had grand plans to uh, cover... Adam Curtis's more recent film, Can't Get You Out of My Head, or more recent series, I think his his work kind of lies in that ambiguous zone between long films, miniseries, and so forth. And uh, I, of course, you know, <laughs> the Lost in Twin Peaks project just consumed everything last fall, and that went by the wayside. But I had thought, oh, I should uh, revisit some of his, you know, I think actually this was the only one I'd ever seen before, The Power of Nightmares. I thought, oh, I should revisit that, and I should watch some of his other stuff. So I kind of had these floating around there. Forgot they were on there. I was watching stuff for my Unseen series, and then, lo and behold, the next one pop up is uh, Disc 1 of Power of Nightmares. And this was when I was planning to cancel the uh, Netflix for the month, so I thought, oh, well, i gotta, I got to keep this going for another month now to get the next two installments, because now that I've rewatched this, I really want to see the rest again. So Power of Nightmares I first saw in the mid-2000s, and uh, at the time, I was sort of ambivalent about it. I thought it was certainly very striking and hypnotic. Adam Curtis has a style where he uses tons of old footage. Apparently, it's just basically trawling through the uh, you know the the raw backlog of the BBC and just grabbing any and all footage that he can from their library as a, as a filmmaker with them. And uh, so he puts this footage on screen with like pop music and edits it in kind of striking, unusual ways. And uh, while this is all going on, he's often narrating his, uh, they're heavily narrated films, um, narrating his kind of thesis, uh, often repetitively so, like he'll say, sort of repeat the same exact phrases or sentences over and over and kind of drill them in. And in this case, the thesis of the film is that the neoconservatives, starting with the philosopher Leo Strauss in the 50s, teaching at the University of Chicago, has a... uh, that their sort of movement that led to the Bush administration's global war on terror has a eerie parallel in the very forces that they were fighting in that war, 
uh, specifically the Al-Qaeda group and uh, the more broadly the radical uh, Islamic uh, ideology that developed in the around the same time as Strauss actually he he traces it back to uh, Sayyid Qutb a uh, Egyptian uh, manager uh, who went to the US to study the educational system and uh, try to bring it back to Egypt so his whole mission was to kind of get a sense of the secular West and what they were doing and apply those methods at home and he never fully abandoned um, part of that idea, which was to bring modernization to uh, the Middle East and the Muslim world, but he was repelled by the secular uh, values of the U.S. as he saw them. And so the one part of this film that I really, really remembered well, it's always stuck with me and just fascinated me because it's so small and anecdotal and so perverse in a way, is uh, Qutb went to a uh, church social and this is now, I think, nineteen early 1950s, like way pre-rock and roll, maybe even late 1940s. And the pastor was ha- holding a youth dance, and he put uh, the record, Baby, It's Cold Outside. And uh, as he watched the teenagers dance with one another, it just the picture of innocent Norman Rockwell-esque, uh, you know, post-war Americana, the innocent age that... Uh, future generations would look back on or, you know, the generations who lived back at, through it at the time would look back on nostalgically and say it was so much more innocent then, so much purer, so much cleaner. He looked at this very scene and was disgusted and thought this is wretched. They're using a house of worship to kind of press flesh against flesh as he describes it in his memoirs or whatever he wrote about this experience at the time. And it crystallized everything he found grotesque about American culture. And uh, he went back to Egypt determined to make sure that uh, those sort of Western values that he saw as almost a virus didn't contaminate the populace. He became uh, much more radical. He wanted to overthrow uh, Nasser, the secular leader of Egypt at this time. He was then imprisoned and tortured, as Adam Curtis points out, uh, using techniques that the uh, torturers were trained in by the CIA. So all of this stuff coming kind of full circle eventually, as you'll see. And uh, he went on to... uh, be eventually executed in the 60s, but he inspired a lot of followers. And so Curtis kind of traces this genealogy simultaneously with the genealogy of Strauss and the neoconservatives who uh, were often former liberals who moved right in the 60s and 70s and particularly embraced like a militant foreign policy against uh, the Soviet Union. And so the irony, of course, at this time is now in the 80s, these two forces come together for the first time as allies fighting against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And then eventually, of course, after their success, which he questions the level of responsibility for that, but they perceived it as a success, both of the the groupings taking credit for it. And then eventually, of course, they would face off against each other in the early 2000s after 9-11 with the neoconservatives sort of hunting for a useful enemy so that they could sort of project American power into the world and uh, restage the Cold War in a way. And the reason that they wanted to do this, according to the documentary's presentation, is the uh, Straussian theory that uh, the sort of liberal post-war order was too soft and weak, and Americans needed grand myths to believe. And, you know, Strauss is presented as, as feeling this from a more cynical or coldly realistic perspective. Like, yes, they need their myths. They need their easy concepts of good and bad to follow, to keep them... Uh, sort of virtuous. Um, but the suggestion is, well, we know these things aren't really true. But for whatever reason, um, 
the neoconservatives as seen in this film actually kind of drink the Kool-Aid themselves and come to believe, yes, that this Straussian theory is right and those myths are real and we need to, you know, we are believing this as well. It's almost like sort of religious adherence. Again, this sort of parallel he draws with the Islamists and with the um, radical uh, Islamic uh, groups that he shows, really their goal is more to overthrow governments in the Middle East that have are seen as too corrupt, too secular. And the way these concepts, by the way, weave together is interesting and I think creates an interesting dynamic in the film. Uh, with both of these groups, they are very much right-wing conservative forces. Curtis is at the very least a liberal, I think, broadly sympathetic with the left. Certainly he's been taken on by this generation of leftists as a kind of a godfather. Chapo Trap House had him on as their guest immediately after the Trump election in 2016 in a sort of legendary episode that uh, marks a whole other era that we could discuss. But there is a kind of fascination as well as disgust here with these figures and these movements who found something to so fervently believe in, even though it's posited in the film as a very negative vision, uh, that after the utopian dreams of the World War II era, or post-World War II, I guess, era, had uh, collapsed, that all that was left was this politics of fear. And this is the thesis of the film, that these two forces drive each other on because of this sort of commonality and exaggerating each other's uh, effects and threats and so forth so that they can have something great and grand to believe in, this great historical project of fighting the evil other that uh, gives their lives and gives them gives their, their existence this meaning, even though the populations as a whole are shown to be pretty much detached, both in the Islamic world and, the, and in America, from the sort of grand ambitions of this. And there's a weird love-hate relationship where these figures see themselves as the redeemers of the masses and then frustrated with the masses' own sort of uh, flabby, you know, uh, shabby insufficiencies. And I think this is also something that <laughs> you can sort of see mirrored at times in leftist revolutionary groups. So there's an interesting sort of perversity to this whole portrait of these right-wing forces that share with the left a kind of idealistic um, vision, but sort of flipped on its head in some dark ways. And that's how the movie approaches this subject. And I remember at the time when I originally saw this, despite being struck by its approach and by that one moment at the church social, I was, I would say, generally kind of skeptical and uh, not really buying into the film's framing on several levels. For one thing, I was more centrist at the time and particularly had a kind of anti-left strain where I was resistant, um, in some ways healthily so, but uh, exaggerating so of sort of a, what I saw as the left's sort of like over-idealization or simplistic uh, view of the world. is, And uh, I, I didn't quite buy the idea that this film was presenting that, um, for one thing, that the terrorist threat was so completely manufactured. I'm more sympathetic to that view now, uh, maybe even overly so, to the point where I was kind of looking up some uh, articles and stuff written at the time. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll link one of them below by Peter Bergen and then The Nation, where they sort of push back on this idea that the film presents, which is that Al-Qaeda functionally just almost didn't exist at all. Um, and I, I am kind of more sympathetic to that view now, I think, that so much of this was a manufactured narrative. Um, then, you know, it, at the time, I think I was more, I was against the Iraq war, but I thought, well, the, the whole, uh, the, the you know, Afghanistan is the good war, so to speak, and the war on terror, all that makes sense. This, the Iraq was just a diversion from that, which 
there is truth to the fact that Iraq was a wild, radical departure, even from that. But there were, there were, I mean, fundamental cracks in the foundation of this thing from the get-go. So what the film presents is uh, that in the by the late '90s, early 2000s, what was sort of left of this Islamic movement that was sweeping uh, those countries in the early 2000s was in tatters. The governments had repressed them pretty brutally. They turned to terrorism, which alienated a lot of uh, civili- the civilian population. They became more splintered and remote. And Osama bin Laden's prominence was as the money man. You know, this is a guy from a wealthy Saudi family. Uh, the film actually focuses more in some ways on uh, Zawahiri. I, I can't remember his um, first name, but the kind of ideological uh, philosopher of the, of the movement, so to speak. Um, I think he was the head of uh, the group Islamic Jihad, which Al-Qaeda initially kind of functioned under. And, and the film points out that oh, oh, bin Laden's structure was extremely loose. It was basically him and a few ragtag group of followers who were part of this much larger ecosystem, which was uh, really, in you know, under the Taliban in Afghanistan, really more training people to fight their own governments. And so there's even a video they show of Osama bin Laden walking through a crowd with this menacing group of armed guards around him. It turns out they were all members of other groups who were hired for the day to sort of pose as his personal bodyguard for this propaganda video. So there really wasn't much there. Uh, Curtis claims that the U.S. government was really the first to even use the term al-Qaeda to describe this kind of informal organization and make it seem more like the mafia. I've heard disputes of this. People say, oh, no, they were using it in exchanges. Now, again, the film also does such a good job of showing how many of the supposed terror plots and the evidence that was gathered by the FBI and the administration really fell through uh, in court and sometimes in appeals to the point where they were basically manufacturing these sleeper cells out of thin air. We'll talk about that in a minute because there's some really egregious examples of that. But with all that in mind, I read this you know, article from 2004 critiquing uh, Curtis and saying, well, but they've shown that these documents were used. And I'm like, well, did they really? I don't know. I'd have to look into it more because at this point, I don't necessarily trust even these things that are supposedly airtight evidence that, uh, you know, so much of which later has been shown to be kind of flimsy. So the film does go on to show how post 9-11, they're they're just creating these uh, ideas of like, here's this group here who is going to attack Disneyland and they've got a home movie of like, uh, it pretends to be a tourist video, but it's all coded. There's like, you know, if it, it pans past a trash can and that's where they were going to plant the bomb and all this crazy stuff. You're like, like the paranoid delusions of somebody who's like, you know, high off their gourd basically, but this was government agents doing this. It would be hilarious if it wasn't tragic as well, because these people's lives were completely upended. Um, they were like looking at a notebook saying, this is a plan. This, these are sketches to show like their planned attack on a, U.S. base in Jordan. It turns out it wasn't even theirs. Somebody, like a previous resident who was insane, had left it behind, and it wasn't even showing that. Like, just the level of, I mean, if you were to write, like, a Christopher Guest movie about, like, the bumbling, uh, you know, anti-terror forces, you couldn't make stuff up more ridiculous than some of this. So the film does a great job showing all of that. And I realized watching it, I'm pretty sure I only saw the first episode the first time I watched it. I don't think I even got to this later stuff, which is kind of a pity because I think it would have it would have been something interesting to grapple with and look into and kind of challenge my beliefs at the time more that, uh, you know, the, the film really digging into just how hollow this whole concept was. Now, that said, I think looking at it now, I, I have in some ways almost overlapping critiques from a different angle of some aspects of it. Uh, at the time, I thought, well, they're 
it's not really yes the neocons are are destructive and and um you know harmful in these various ways but they're not like al-qaeda you know this is and i think at the time it was still the sort of residual faith in the you know america is the sort of superior moral force in the world and even our you know our our less savory politicians are still not as bad as this and that and the other thing and uh, actually, so looking at it now, I, I actually, you know, I, I do feel there is a kind of a moral equivalency there in many ways between American technocrats and uh, these forces they were fighting in a way that it's almost um, less flattering to the neocons than to the, uh, the uh, radical Islamists, because in a way, I don't know if you'd say at least, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the Al Qaeda and the uh, those those groups are at least getting their hands dirty in the sense that they're you know commissioning these crimes often in ways that endanger themselves and so forth. You know, it reminds me of the thing that Bill Maher got fired for from from HBO, where uh, Dinesh D'Souza was on there, and they were saying, "Well, the uh, you can call these uh, the terrorists a lot of things, but you can't call them cowardly." I mean, that that was not a cowardly act. It, whatever it was, it was you know immoral and all of these and and you know cruel and and sadistic and all of this to put those people on the plane through this but you know they put themselves through it as well so there is that aspect of it where it's like well these are people who are at least putting themselves on the line whereas these uh these neocons live in utter fantasies they're just their goofy cartoonish black and white views of the world and they enact it all from these like air-conditioned offices in washington dc and other people on their side on the other side innocent people caught in between they suffer the consequences. And I remember being particularly struck by this when I watched the film Taxi to the Dark Side in um, the early days of my site, actually, when I was doing like a series in the 2008 election. And it was a film about torture and the U.S. chain of command and how it facilitated this. And I was just so struck by the gap between the lives that these like bureaucrats were leading who were, you know, basically starting the ball rolling on all this stuff, how completely removed. It was like they were playing a video game. And these people around the world are just suffering extreme physical, bodily pain, mental distress, all of these horrible things. And there's no, it's like the chaos theory thing and the butterfly flapping its wings. Um, and I wrote about this at the time and it's stuck with me ever since. I actually feel like in some ways that was kind of a formative political moment for me that's never left this kind of rage that somebody can unleash something so destructive and just be so absolutely insulated from it and then of course there was you know the global financial crash right after that uh, everything that's happened in the past 15 years up to the present moment and beyond um, i mean with the supreme court right now it's like these decisions that can be made by the people who are so protected from it and how they get furious if there's even a slight discomfort to them and uh, just that gap in power has never left me, That that how striking that is. And actually, so that would be my criticism of the film now is his case against the uh, neocons and, the, and, and for the equation of them with Al-Qaeda might be stronger if he presented more of like a visceral sense of the violent, bloody outcomes of their decisions from so far away. I think the fact that he sort of shows them in their environments that you know, certainly for someone like me at this time watching this, it was like, well, you can't really, as bad as they are, you can't, you know, equivalent these, uh, the the American politicians with these, like, terrorists killing innocent people around. It's like, well, you can, and here's why, but he doesn't really quite 
uh, present that in the same, certainly in the same way that he presents the victims of Al Qaeda. And again, I don't think this is like a soft peddling on his part so much as because he does the whole spine of the film is that they're equivalent. I just think he doesn't make the strongest case he could have he could have made. I think, and uh, it's interesting to consider too the you know there are aspects of this film which are pretty dated. For one thing, he is he presents like the middle passage of the neocons. Um, you know, their sort of trajectory of looking for a moral crusade is being their takedown of Bill Clinton in the 90s with the Lewinsky scandals. Now, that's weak on a number of fronts. First of all, um, and other people have pointed this out as well, that was much more of like a religious right thing than it was the sort of secular neocon, um, grand historical uh, ambition. I think they participated in it to the extent they saw it. I, I think he does strike on a, on a kind of... Um, thematic connection when he talks about how like neocon publications saw going after Clinton as a way of kind of keeping this idea of like a moral force in the world and having this sort of moral purpose to politics and virtuous pursuit of some grand ambitious goal, how they sort of kept that alive in the post-Cold War world. Um, there's something to that, but really the it was much more of a partisan kind of religious thing uh, than it was, I think, a part of the larger neocon project. And I think maybe a more compelling uh, thing to cover would have been the fallout from the end of the Cold War. Um, the notion that, you know, well, a lot of these people in these nations wanted to kind of break out from under the stifling um, the Soviet system of the time, which he's very critical of while also downplaying it, saying, you know, that it was not you know, like Al Qaeda later, it was a much exaggerated threat. But he he takes it for granted that it was uh, largely just a purely negative system that deserved to collapse, which may be the case. But the outcome of that, I think, particularly within Russia itself, was disastrous, and that would have been a fascinating thing to look at. But uh, it does not really where the film goes. The Clinton stuff is interesting again as a weird time capsule that hasn't aged well. Uh, David Brock who was a former Republican who was going hard after Clinton and then actually ended up in the Clinton camp, is interviewed as sort of a voice of wisdom and reason. And uh, Bernie supporters will remember him as the guy who basically started the ball rolling on the whole weird, like, attack Bernie from the left and the right simultaneously thing that started in 2016. Like, he was the ringleader of that group, correct the record. So it's weird to see him in this context as the voice of authority who regrets his bad days on the right and is criticizing the neocons now. It's like, yeah, he kind of went from one poison to the other. And Clinton himself is presented in a very normie 90s politician who wants to take us away from this increasingly crazy Republican Party. Like they talk about the 92 convention, which I've talked about in my Firewalk With Me podcast, actually, um, the public version of it where I did the current events of the time, or actually the patron version too, where I talk about uh, Pat Buchanan's speech and all that. So the film kind of presents that as like the Republicans going off the rails and their moral obsessions and Clinton's just this reasonable guy who comes in. Now, I don't think Curtis is exactly a Clinton fan and he's certainly not a Tony Blair fan in this film, how he presents his role in the war on terror, but uh, it does come off in this is this very like what I very much remember from the time is being sort of the conventional wisdom of like, ah yeah, Clinton, he's a reasonable guy governing pretty reasonably from the center and over, you know, correcting for this like the excesses of Reagan and Bush and just let the guy do his job. And yeah, he's a bit of a swinger. He's a cool 90s guy, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all of this, I think anybody even remotely, not just on the left, but often even a lot of the center left and liberals uh, really view Clinton and the Clintons with much more uh, kind of uh, chagrin, I guess, 
than uh, they did at the time when they kind of had this by dint of being the targets of the right defensive aura around them even in this context in this film where it would seem to have nothing to do with the larger subject and does feel very shoehorned in it also makes me think of how probably in british and certainly like european context i feel like clinton and obama are given much more of a pass they're looked at in a non-american context where people who support much more social democratic societies in their own countries like accept clinton and obama as figures of the popular left who are doing battle with the right. And it's like, yeah, in, in your context, they would be conservatives, actually. But, you know, something about the appeal there. So anyways, that's the the kind of trajectory of this film. It, it goes from the, the that period in the you know post-war period through the 70s and 80s and the intensification of the Cold War and then this weird sort of 90s moment where everyone seemed a little aimless and how they all find their purpose now in the war on terror moment, which is still going on when this film was made very much. So. I mean, 2004 was in many ways the height of that moment. It's interesting how little Iraq is in the film. They do show the shock and awe bombing and talk a little bit about Saddam Hussein. But it's funny looking back on this. I, I watched this around the same time. I listened to a podcast about the Iraq war and they really melded, I mean, just by sheer coincidence, and they melded together quite well in my head where one sort of complemented the other. Um, picking up what the other one was missing in a way. But uh, it is interesting to actually look at the film in isolation and be like, yeah, Iraq is really not the focus of this. It's all about al-Qaeda and uh, the, the war on terror. So another part of it that uh, I really feel like, you know, it's funny, living through this period and getting, you know, digesting it through certain media and then getting more critiques and, and all of that at the time, I, there are things that like I don't really feel like I ever got as much clarification on then as I am now. So the way he presents the Tora Bora stuff where like Osama bin Laden was supposedly hiding out in these this massive network of caves that was fully like equipped, had air conditioning units and elevators and all this stuff. And then they get there and it's like just caves with rocks that like a few people hid out in and there was no great organized base there the degree to which he just absolutely punctures and detonates these myths is riveting. I mean, in a way, it's it's as sort of gripping and captivating as the myths were at the time, the deconstruction of the myth uh, in, in this sort of eerie kind of echo. is like it, it almost becomes as... And I think that was part of my skepticism of this film, too, was like, well, okay, I don't believe the myths they're weaving, but is he kind of weaving, you know, what Oliver Stone would call a counter-myth, which I think is useful, first of all, I would say. I don't think everything has to be pure journalism in film, and the the power of this film is the way it weaves this narrative um, through the, you know, both the form and the content. And I haven't mentioned yet, it's loaded to the gills with music, particularly Brian Eno, Another Green World uh, keeps looping these tracks, and it creates this this impression, this kind of feverish impression as well, where you're immersed in this world. So uh, I, I really got to watch more Adam Curtis films. There's just something really interesting about taking these subjects of ideology and political narratives and putting it in such a uh, visceral form, which I really like. And I can relate certainly to like video essays and that type of approach. I mean, this is an essay film in some ways more than a conventional documentary. Although he does have a lot of interviews, including with like neocons who just, it's kind of your, your jaw hits the floor watching like Richard Pearl. This is 2004 still trying to maintain there's some connection between Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. And you're just like, wow. And they all sat down for these interviews. And some of them, you just want to like 
reach for the screen and strangle them. Like this one guy, uh, Michael Ledeen, the neocon, talking about the Soviets in the 80s. And the way they talk is so childish. That's the thing that really strikes me. And I think this is a quality that really, in some ways, sets them apart from later incarnations of the right. I think with the Tea Party and with Trump, where there's really more of like almost a cynical, sneering uh, quality to it of like, we know we're full of shit and we're going to shove it in your face anyways. Um, which in some ways it's reaching its apotheosis now, I think, with this whole sort of DeSantis craze of like, oh, this guy who just does nothing but fight cynical culture wars all day while he's paying off his donors behind him. That strain of the conservative movement um, reaching ahead. And in contrast, the neocons um, come off as frighteningly so true believers, true people who drank their own Kool-Aid, this idea of like, you got to create a a myth for the masses, but they totally believe it. And it gives their lives this ridiculous sense of purpose where they're all out of the academic world and insular Washington bureaucratic world where it's like they have no real context with most of or contact with most of society. And they just from these gated communities conduct themselves as conductors of the world and are just allowed to do so. And uh, it's maddening. So I could contrast these two things. It's not really to elevate one or the other. They're both kind of awful in their own ways. But the degree to which these people just spit out these simplistic platitudes that they really believe, like they think they've unlocked this key to how the world works, and it's infantile. It's like, well, the bad guys do this, and we do that. At the same time, there is a weird parallel where there's also other forces that are coalescing with these more cynical actors on the right right now. I think you can see it really in this sort of religious aspect, all these converts to Catholicism who want a national conservatism that is very vaguely sort of anti-neoliberal, but mostly just worked up about culture war. Again, it's this case of the more cynical actors feeding this pablum to people, and then some of them actually buying it themselves. We'll see where all of that goes. I suppose Adam Curtis will have more material for another movie, but uh, this was a fascinating revisit for me. Um, just very striking and absorbing to watch and uh, hopefully a kickoff to more of that. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to help other people see this. And uh, for the next episode, I'm going to do something I don't usually like to do, but I wanted to do it in this case because I'm at least pausing slash putting this podcast on hiatus in June, if not just, you know, concluding it there, we'll see. But I wanted to have this section I did for patrons out, uh, even though it came out as recently as uh, February. So usually I like to wait six months before sharing patron work with the public, but this one might not get out there if I don't uh, put it up soon. So you can hear this, you may recognize what it is just from the sound of it. Um, I'll leave it as a surprise, but I discussed the book this was based on. It's a big, long, in-depth discussion. Not sure if I'll include the book part as well, or if I'll just leave that as a Patreon perk, but uh, I think it's probably so interwoven with the discussion of the movie that I I might include both on there. But either way, it'll be a good, long episode uh, discussing a film from the past decade that uh, has been highly acclaimed and I think is one of my favorites of that decade. So here it is. So you live alone? Yes. You think I'm pretty? I like it gorgeous.
come to me.